He's a two-time Irish national champion who began his career riding for France. A long-serving road captain in the peloton who turned his hand to the tango before picking up the gravel bike and is also starting out his career in the car as a DS on the road for Trinity Racing. Please welcome Nicholas Roach today on Bobby and Jens. Okay, Nicholas Roach, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hi, thanks. How are you doing? Oh man, I, I'm doing great. I am so excited about talking to you today because, you know, I, I follow you on uh, social media and you are on quite a massive adventure right now. And I want to talk about you and your career and your dad, but should we just dive into where you are and what you're doing right now down there in Arizona? So I just competed a couple of days ago in one of the Belgian Waffle races. And now I'm traveling across to Oklahoma, where I'll be riding mid-south in a couple of days. And uh, so I'm right in the middle of Arizona, about two hours up. I left this morning and uh, I'm about another 10 hour drive, but I'm probably going to stop somewhere randomly and um, get out on the bike, get two hours in, sleep over here tonight, and then get some other training in the morning. So I break it up into a couple of steps so that all this training out as well. It's kind of a hard one to get the logistic rights. So then, uh, what sort of transport do you have? Do you have a, like a proper camping van, or how are you moving along these days? I took I took a rented car, so I was all excited uh, about BWR. I I was going to okay, I'm going to rent this camper van and go full on, you know. And obviously, it was my first time doing it, and I didn't realize that camper van is great. We also have to find a camping place, <laughs> and, and all of the camping places were all fully booked out. Uh, weeks in advance. So obviously then I had to cancel the the camper van because there was no point having the camper van in a camper uh, or in a camping place 40 minutes away from the venue because you have to get a car or whatever, all the same. So that was my, my first lesson. Was, all right, look for the venue, look for the campsite and then book the camper van. So this trip I uh, ended up canceling that and I took a rented car and I just go randomly and find hotels as I, as I drive. And and uh, you just pulled over to the side of the road. You said you're at a burger place right now. They won't let you use the internet on your computer. So we'll we'll uh, apologize in advance for any sort of uh, audio issues. But man, when 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 you kind of told me what you were doing, I was like, man, I hope you know what you're getting into here, right? Like <laughs> it's it's a big country. There's a long way just in one state, let alone getting all the way to to Oklahoma. So, I mean, you get in all the way, you know, you were busy over in Europe, which we'll try to get to that here in a second. You land, you get there probably jet lagged. And then the next day you're like already doing photo shoots. How has the jet lag been? And, you know, are you kind of getting, getting going now? So actually coming this way, I find jet lag is quite easy because it's a long journey and you're right pretty tired. So... By the time you get here, you just you just kind of almost want to get to bed. The first few nights I was getting up really early, but because those gravel races, you got to get up around four thirty-five for breakfast at the latest. So actually, getting up at three a.m. the first night and four a.m. the next day is only preparing me for my breakfast for the for the ride on the weekend. So I've been trying to um, I've been trying to keep that that rhythm. So I kind of go to bed around ten and get up around six. Just so I'm not also too tired for, for when I'm going to get up eventually and put those, uh, put those early starts in those gravel races. 
So talking gravel races, how do you get hooked up with that? How, what was your first contact to that? And is that your new love and you're going to do much more of them in the future? Yeah. So basically last year when I, when I was waiting on my road bike, uh, the guys that were looking after me in Irish company gave me, gave me a gravel bike. I says, ah, oh, we don't have your, your bike's not going to be ready for a couple of weeks. So we'll use this. Obviously I was back in Ireland doing the death with the star show. So a gravel bike was almost more winter bike than a gravel bike. So I just, <laughs> I just used it on the, on the bad roads and I didn't go so much into the gravel. But, um, when I got back to, after the show, when I got back to Monaco, my brother was like, oh, is this a uh, world series gravel in France? We really need to go and go or do a boys trip. I was like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. Let's go there and have a few beers and crash a hotel and have a bit of time with my brother, go out for pizza and, uh, and go smash it on the gravel bike. I didn't have much training because I was, I was dancing for four months, but I went there and, uh, I enjoyed it. I didn't figure some much. and I had three flats in the last 20 games. So I had to, had to end up in the boot of a car. Then someone uh, that was on the side of the road to bring me back to the finish. That was my first experience. But then I was like, okay, I think I want to do a little bit more of that just for the fun. And also because it was, um, it was good to, to have an excuse to get back on the bike and to be in shape. And it's not incompatible with lipsing at with you know, the TV work or all the other stuff that I have going. So I thought it was a good compromise. And then, um, coming towards the end of the year, I was like, okay, I've got a fair bit of time now on the bike. I think I'm fit. I want to try and go and, and, and haven't been on a holiday in a while. Let's go to the, to the States and let's go and, and race a couple of the races of the real stuff, you know, the big Kansas races, Midwest ones, uh, and, and see how they go. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And then I got back and I called a few of my sponsors. And I was like, guys, look, uh, I know I'm a brand ambassador, but you guys want to help me out? And I'll go and, and commit to, you know, 10 to 15 events next year in the States. And everyone, yeah, and everyone got over. I didn't bet the project. So I thought, uh, well, why not? So I'm going to do, I think, 22 races this year. And, and 13 of them are in the States. I go to Australia. I go to Canada. A few, uh, a few in Europe as well. So super exciting. A lot of time on my own. Uh, my brother's going to come to two or three other races in, um, like outside of Europe. I've also created a mini structure because I thought it was interesting. Uh, and my sponsors were, were really happy of kind of growing as well. So I have a French girl called Justine who's going to race with me as well. So there'd be three of us. And, um, so they, my brother and Justine are going to do a bit more of the European stuff or I can't get these rights <laughs> in my years. And, um, and I'll be doing some of the. The US stuff, it's like, you know, having a midnight prices, but instead of buying a Porsche and going to Nürburgring, I, I get on the gravel bike and fight in the States and, and travel in the car and sleep in motels. Man, there, there are so many things I want to ask you about gravel racing, but I'm not going to just gloss over the fact that you said you spent four months dancing with the dancing with the stars show. I mean, okay, we don't get out much. I don't think there's many cyclists that can dance at all i mean you have the looks of you know uh a rock star but how the heck as an ex-cyclist were you on dancing with the stars i mean do you have some hidden talent that we didn't know about were you like younger you know in your younger days trained in ballet or something how, how do you do that no no look i could not know that but from right foot so uh it was uh i, I think that was the whole the whole idea of the show they 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 really enjoyed and liked the fact that I started from scratch. And you know, there's always some singers, there's always some pop stars, or or people who have kind of a bit of a media background. Where I started with nothing, you know. Uh, there's there's a couple of TV presenters, so they're really handy with the camera. And it's not just the lack of 
of dancing skills, also the lack of being a showman. So I had a lot of catching up to do, uh, but it was, it was challenging. It was fun. I, I cannot tell you how many times I, I wanted to just slam the door and walk out, but I think that's, you know, you know, yourselves, how, how we enjoy when it's hard. Uh, and, and that was no difference. Alrighty. Now I'm dying to know what was your favorite dance? What did you do? Foxtrot, tango or waltzer? Yeah. What was your favorite one? The, the, the tango was the, the one I preferred. It was, that was so passionate. It was so much fun. And also because both of us had COVID the week before that, and uh, we did three days of training online. Uh, and she would be on, on FaceTime. I'd be on the computer the other side and we would correct the steps. And I had a broomstick for training on my own. And, uh, and that was insane. And then when we got together the, for the, for the dance, it was, it was so cool. The two of us were, were really, you know, it's a very passionate dance. Um, and, and that was, that was one of my, my better ones. Funny enough, also one was called American Snoots and I danced to, uh, Gene Kenny singing in the rain. And that was my elements there. There I was, I thought I was a movie star and, uh, and it's the first time in my life I was able to forget about everything and I didn't care about anything and I just let go and I enjoyed that dance so much. I didn't score too many points, but everyone was like, wow, like <laughs> we've never seen you like this. And I enjoyed it. And, uh, but that was the one as uh, singing in the rain. Dang. Yeah. You know, I, I'm all up for a challenge and that's what I call golf, but that takes four or five hours. You're talking four months of doing something that you're not great at. I don't know if I'd be able to stick with that. But um, so, so you're a gravel newbie. I consider myself a Cat 5 gravel uh, participant, not even a racer. So what is it that has sparked that interest where all of a sudden you're going to make this commitment to doing so many of these events? What, what is it that you didn't get from road cycling that you're finding in, in gravel cycling? So I got a lot out of road cycling is what I didn't get the last couple of years. I didn't stop because... I was tired of cycling, I was tired of racing. I was tired of the structure of World Tour today. And the fact that I had no, not a much freedom that I enjoyed. And I think I know how to train myself. I know how to eat and drink. And, and when coaches were telling me that I've done a wrong call, that I've been out of 18 years and want to start from scratch and train me like a Neo Pro, uh, it just didn't work because not because it was wrong, but just because when you get older, it's very difficult to adapt to new training. So maybe by the time I was 45, I would be adapted to all this kind of new polarized stuff. But, but you know, I was still doing my three times 20 minutes at threshold with my spikes, you know, still kind of old school and it didn't do me any wrong, but, um, I was just fed up of, of always having to, to like, I wasn't enjoying my training because I just always had to do what I was told, although, um, I wasn't believing in my training and once that started, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And then I go to the races and people were, it was almost a problem in my, cause I was not a champion like Valverde or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You can still win races, but I felt that when I was a team and helping young guys develop, it was almost a problem when I was going good because I was not in part of that development that was already developed. So I was not being in that process that came out from the team. I don't know if you get me. So once that the teams only wanted me for my experience, 
kind of lost interest because like, no, I still want to race. I want to go up the front. I want to go on breakaways and I'm still capable of going on breakaways. I still get results. I don't want to just be there and be a school teacher. Uh, and it's too risky to be on the road, too hard to make all these sacrifices to be told, oh no, Nico, don't worry about it. You, you, you need to do this and do that. And, and when I was doing it and I was getting all the excitement of working for all, for all these team leaders, um, it was never an issue for me. I was committed to working with guys because there was always something stimulating behind it. And I lost a bit of that in the last few years of my of my career. And I get all that back in gravel. I train on my own schedule. I do my own thing. I do my own race program. I can go and smash it. I can, and I get all these disciplines like if I'm a junior again. So it sounds like the flame of passion still burns in you. So when you go to these races, is it for the campfire experience and have a beer with the boys afterwards? Or you be at the start line with the knife between your teeth and ready to crush some souls? So how do you approach a race? Yeah. I think they're not incompatible. Uh, and you know, like uh, on, on here's like a little story for, for Saturday night, for example. Um, we did it. We finished, did the last loop of the recall and then got to the hotel and told my brother, right, let's go and see how this cave creek is like a real cowboy town. And there's a, there's this whiskey distillery and I'm a big whiskey lover. Well, actually bourbon. And I was like, ah, oh, let's go on a whiskey tasting, you know? And we didn't have many. We had two, the two bourbons that they had. Uh, and then after that, we went out for, for dinner to the restaurant that was next door. And the same, I had my dessert and I had a glass of wine. So, so it's just, I think it's about the old scarce. Yes. Thank you. It's about the, uh, no, thank you. It's about the experience. And yeah, for our listeners, Nico just got a massive burger. That thing is the size of Texas. Good for you, man. So like I said, it's not about the adventure. And, and I think, you know, it's not incompatible to be, to be focused on the bike and train hard, but still let go a little bit and enjoy kind of a beer here and there, a glass of wine. Cause like, you know, we've made all the sacrifices years ago. You know, that's funny that you mentioned that because I've been retired for quite a while now. And just looking back, there's so many things I think I would have changed. You know, my perspective is much different. Like, why do we, why did we have to live so seriously? Why couldn't we ever be on our feet? Why couldn't we go to the museums that were right across the street, like in Bilbao, Spain there, you know, with the Guggenheim? you know, walk around Paris, walk out around Venice. And I wonder, you know, at that time, like that's your job, right? Like you have to be relaxed, recovered. But honestly, I think my perspective has, has changed a lot because you have to be a human being too, right? Like you can't just eat, you know, the, the same meals. You can't just train all the time. I mean, you just be, become kind of one-dimensional and now i'm wondering man I, i wish i would have done a couple of those other things and it sounds like it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing so that's that's just that's just awesome to hear yeah it totally is i i, I relate to your story and, and i've actually used your words a few times to some of the guys telling them that it's like you know all my years like when i started if you went up the stairs instead of taking the elevator you were not professional you know <laughs> like come on where now guys go for a 10k run But, uh, but there, there's just, uh, um, it's like, I think this, this year, especially is going to be so enriching for me. Like even the last 10 days I've been hearing, you know, 
in the States, just traveling through Arizona and then now this even was this road trip. Like I have a fifteen hour drive and I stopped about three times to take photographs of the mountains and views on the side of the road. It's just I'm just taking my time and sinking it in. And I'm at home, so I have no rush, I have nowhere to go. As long as I'm in Oklahoma on Thursday, I'm fine. A lot of freedom for you in the land of the free. That is so cool. Yeah. Once this crazy trip stops or you reached um, your last race, where do you go next? Back home? Where is home right now? So right now is Monaco still. Um, that downgraded in the park leaf took something a bit smaller also because I'm going to be traveling so much over the next two years. So the plan is to commit to this kind of gravel uh, for about two years. Also, I'm still working on TV and still working as a manager with Trinity. So keeping busy that side as well. And uh, I, I think it's just having a balance between these three things. And, and for me, it's, like, it's great. I'm, like, I'm almost never home. I was two days home in February. And it's going to be like three days home for March. But, but at the same time, um, I still, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in a situation where I can, I can be on the road and I enjoy being on the road. So I want to really make the most of those two years and, and basically see the world with a different eye and experience any amazing thing. And then in two years' time, I'll make a call and say, okay, now I just focus on TV or do something else. But um, I don't want to be gra racing gravel bikes all my life. I don't want to do another career of gravel racing. I want to just sink in this life. When I, like I said, I, I think I'm lucky to be in this situation that I can just go <laughs> and, and do my own thing and, and just thinking of the experience. And wow, and have a lot of fun, meet a lot of people along the way. It's been super cool, made loads of new friends. And, uh, And yeah, and once that's done, uh, reassess things and, and focus more time on, on your TV. I had to make the call, for example, already now. Uh, last week, I, I got a phone call to do Tour of Romandy as, with GCN. So obviously, there was also a big race in Spain called the Tracker. And I said, okay, my priority is also the future because my cycling is a little bit the past, you know? So this is bonus. So I had to cancel two of the gravel races to go and, uh, and work on TV. So I still have to keep it you up know, to, to reality as well. Have you spent much time in the U.S. prior to this trip? No, I've been a few times to New York on holidays, uh, but but I was and I've been to Turk, California. So so this is great since it's been something very very different. When you go to New York, it's like yeah, it's amazing, but you have a déjà vu impression where everything looks like you. You go to Times Square, it's like I could almost help the other tourists to know where they're going because you've seen it so many times in the movies, uh, and I thought that. The Midwest was something so different to what I've seen. Uh, you see the Midwest stuff in like in horror movies, because I was like in serial killer or whatever. <laughs> But um, I thought it was it was really cool. And now Arizona is just completely different. And I can only guess um, Oklahoma is going to be again different. And then I'm going to Texas or where gravel locos in a couple of weeks time as well. So that's going to be different again. And British Columbia and Canada and and Chumash farms. So that's going to be again different. It's such a big country. Wow. Yeah, you are in for it. And um, maybe maybe when you see the people hitchhiking on the side of the road, um, think about some of those those horror movies that you saw. You never know what's going to happen. But yeah. so so this is all new. The Wild Wild West is all new for you. So as somebody coming and spending time in this part of our country for the first time, what do you have on your list to eat, to buy and to do? Um, or are you just playing it? Playing it by ear. Playing it by ear. And, and look, three days ago, and I never thought I was going to see 
an ice hockey game in Arizona. <laughs> that was the last thing I thought of. And uh, we were we were in the car on on Friday, uh, changing hotels. And and my brother was like, "Oh, I wonder if there's any any games on." I said, "Yeah, look, you know, look at basketball, look at football, look at baseball." And then it's like, "Ah, oh, there's nothing." And then the end, was, there was training sessions from a lot of the teams. I said, like, "Okay, maybe look uh, if there's like a concert hall or something." And then it's like, "Oh." This ice hockey, just ice hockey in the desert. Okay, cool. <laughs> and then we just randomly booked two seats in the afternoon. I went to the ice hockey match in the afternoon. It was, it was super cool. It was so random and so cool. So um, on your travel now, how far is the Grand Canyon away? Would there be a chance to just drive past it to have a quick look at it? No, I, I looked into that. Um, I would have had to to go straight up to Flag something, Flagstaff, Flagstaff. 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 Yeah, Flagstaff. And go up that way, but it would have been about a four-hour detour, so, so I could have crossed. I also looking, I could go down, and that was another four-hour detour to go through Texas and Dallas, and then on the way up. But I thought I just, I just go kind of straight through the mountains, and find a place tonight, and then get a good training in tomorrow, and then drive another five, six hours. So I'm still gonna get there Thursday. Nico, you're a pretty suave dresser, right? When are you gonna get a pair of cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, or have you gotten that already? No, that that is something I, I I thought of, and actually my brother, it was like, oh, I need to get a goblin, and uh, we went into the store in in Cape Creeks, but it was a proper real one, and obviously uh, it wasn't tourist price cowboy hats. And he said, okay, I wanted to get a souvenir, but that was a bit of pricey souvenir. So I think he got one in the airport though. But um, you never know. Like, I I I've got the baseball cap, so that's already a start, and <laughs> I'm going to work on those cowboy boots. Well, once you're fully equipped, then you could maybe spice up your adventure and go from bike riding to bull riding. How about that? No, definitely not. Um, actually, I was good at because in Cave Creek, there was a rodeo show, but they only had it on Thursdays uh, and, and we arrived there Friday. So, so I missed that on it. No, no, I, I think the bulls were... <laughs> well, you know, to, to totally switch gears here, um, you know, I grew up, I got into cycling in 1985 and soon thereafter, your father, Stephen Roach won the triple crown, which I don't think anyone else has done. Maybe Eddie Merckx did it, but winning the tour de yeah. France, the Giro and the world championships, um, with what, what was it like growing up with Stephen Roach, this legendary cyclist as your dad? And were you always going to be a cyclist or was there something else that you were interested in at the beginning? So obviously yeah, back, back in the late eighties, early nineties, he, you know, nobody famous. And as you mentioned, he was the only one at the Whitmerks that I took her crown. And uh, I quickly came to realize that everything I did in, in terms of sports or school, everything I was always going to be doing this, the sun out. Um, I used to, to run and then I went to rugby and I realized that I was always going to be the son of even in those books. So and it was actually funny enough, was, my dad kept me away from cycling for, for a long time. And then eventually when we reflected on in 1998, uh, my dad said, oh, I'm going to give all prizes tonight. Uh, it's been the annual awards of uh, this, this cycling league. And they have an underage race, trying to go and, and give it a go. So I jumped on my mother's bike um, and stopped, bought a pair of shoes. I was wearing my dad's career jerseys. Uh, 
finish second and absolutely love it. And I asked for Santa a bike for Christmas and that's kind of how, how it started. Okay. You said you had the Carrera Jersey. Did you have the, the kick-ass Carrera jean shorts? Yes. Ah, uh-huh. yes. <laughs> Actually, there were even to go more into detail, there were replicas because my dad had a company in, um, the, the, the cycling holiday company in Mallorca. And his first year of the, of the, the business, he replicated the, the last full jeans, jerseys and, and shorts with Carrera and then the logo of his company. So there was a mix of the Stephen Roach cycling holidays and the logo Carrera on there. But it was, a, it was the same, same design as the Carrera stuff. Um, the quick uh, interruption here. Do you actually need a break to eat your burger? No, no, I'll do that in years. Yeah. All right. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. That's going to yeah, take thanks. him like a week to eat that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably take the rest in the doggy bag for the rest of the drive today. Yeah. I'm more worried to kick me out. We'll be back after this short break. Um, so then you raced for a while with a French license, Irish license. How did that come along that you raced for different countries uh, in your career? Yeah, so so you're right. Actually, uh, I so I was with I started off with an Irish license and then I learned about it. Um, actually, even the first years when I came to France, I was also with an Irish license. And then somehow when I went to the bad Jew citizenship, and when I turned pro with Cofidus, Cofidus, um, at the time there was no kind of French young guys coming up, and um, and Chavadal was the established now, but there was there was a big gap with young guys, and I was just twenty. They were like. No, Nicole, uh, wouldn't be harmful if you were, you were French or Canada. It'd be better if you were French and Irish. And, um, I read, oh, okay, well, not good idea. Uh, so, but that only lasted three months. So I took, uh, I took my French license and, and after three months, I, I wrote to the ETI and saying, oh, sorry, um, that I, that I, that I was going to take that license and I was going to. Uh, just go back to my Irish license and they were back saying, okay, that was a one choice for, for life now. And, and that's it. So, so I did have a, a French license for my first three months of, of confidence, which is funny because my, my first confidence had a, a blue, white and red flag in the back. Man, y- you have had a pretty interesting life full of plenty of, plenty of challenges for sure. But tell us, tell us about growing up on the Cote d'Azur. I mean, to me, you know, as an American, we look at the Cote d'Azur the same way that Europeans look at where you are now, like just mm-hmm. a totally different world. But like your mother was French, your dad was Irish, and you're being raised on the Côte d'Azur. Tell, tell us what it was like uh, living and growing up on the Côte d'Azur back then. So for me, it's actually what kept me on the bike because I'll, I'll actually playing uh, football with some friends in the car park just before my, my junior search online. And then we were moving to France that summer. And I tore my cruciate ligament. And when I got back to France, the doctor was like, okay, you can't do anything. You're too young to be operated. So you got to stick to cycling. And I went to the local, local club, uh, and, and actually even a better story. And there's this young, young guy called John, and he rocked up to the hotel when he knew that I'd arrived and asked, says, ah, I'm, I'm cyclist in the local club. Do you want to come and join me and we can go on training and, and we're still friends to today. And he's, like I said, it's so funny. He just randomly filled up at the hotel and saying, Hey mate, if you want to go on the bike, I, I just heard you just arrived. I'm your man. And, um, uh, uh, and I think the whole process of being on the Cote d'Azur and the media to be cycling was 
how much people committed with me to to bringing me to the cycling roles and like that. Afterwards, I was also in a, in international school, so that was always easy. So, I, in, in a way, I, I did the dual program, the English and French program. Actually, the American because it was a BOI school, so the back option international. So it was kind of half of the, the American program and the the French program. After that, you know, I mean, you either done the Côte d'Azur. It's quite nice when you have that that certain was it three hundred days of sunshine, and even the winters are quite quite good, and and the quality of riding is is good. To the fact that it's it would be hard and difficult for me to move to move back to Ireland. I moved to Italy. I went to Switzerland. I went to Spain, and I always kind of find my way going back to uh, back to Nice in that area. You mentioned all these countries you um, worked your way through, and in your 18 years as a pro career, you have been in different teams from different continents, different nations. Any teams you like better than others, and and why? What was the differences, or it was just uh, just all the same? No, every team has their own personality and there was goods and bads in every single team and um i think the team that obviously i think ag tour was the team that that first started really believing in me and and back at the time ag tour was a they were having troubles with restructuring themselves they were they were not ag tour before and they were not ag tour on the whole month of their years and they were they were looking for for this team leader and they helped me a lot and the relationship that i have with with avenue and with um with Jimon Jordida, hard DS. Uh, even today, it still, still talks on its own and we're still very, very close. They were the first one to really give me my chance. And I was a very young 23-year-old team leader at the time. So, you know, today they win three Tour de France by the time I'm 23. But back in 2005, six, it was it was quite quite new. And while we died when I went to Egypt Tour. And um, in terms of experience, I, I think uh, Saxo... 2013 was the best year in terms of uh, experience with with the team, and uh, the group was was amazing. I, I loved working with Jan, uh, and Jan was someone that 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 saw a lot of potential in me. And his wording in the meeting when he was tapping me up always pushed me to give that five or ten percent more because I think that's something that that I lacked in the second part of my career when I decided to go as a road captain as people were just happy with me being a road captain and I always felt I could give more but because I wasn't put under pressure to give more I felt that I didn't have to give more and it was kind of always putting like some kind of limit where where with Bjarne he saw so much potential in me that he he, he pushed me to 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 limits and and to fight mentally way beyond any other thought. Well, you don't have to tell Jens and I how uh, great Bjarne was. Um, he he definitely influenced our careers as uh, very very much as well. But you know, so the road captain role. You know, now you're a DS for Trinity Racing. Um, I saw on your social media, you know, mm -hmm. in the cockpit of the car, all tatted out, looking all suave. You know, riding in the in the caravan. Tell us a little bit about being a DS. I mean, it isn't as easy as it looks, is it? No, especially in DSing in 2023, it's, you spend so much time on the middle viewers with all these empty and apps trying to look at every pothole and what side of the land of bad you to take. And some of the meetings are, are just countless hours almost. And looking up, uh, 
with Trinity, I go into detail, but I still wanted to spend a lot of time on the, on the racing because this is what they, they need as a development team. And I don't want to spending three hours on, on roundabouts and left turns and right turns. And to be fair to the guys, um, everyone's quite used to using these programs. So a lot of the guys do their work on their own. So they come to the meeting and they're already prepared. Uh, and, and for me, it's fun because then we can talk about uh, helping them to get the best out of them. It, it's funny being DS development team because, you know, when you're DSing your team and you need to make a bigger team, you know, jumbo or whatever, and you need to make calls to defend a jersey or to fight for a jersey. So that would be a very similar job to what I would be doing when I was the road captain. Uh, it's about, okay, today we do this, and I think we're going to use you, 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 and you in this position, and we're going to apply this tactic. When you're DSing with a development team, it's about teaching them how to react, how the bigger teams are going to take the race in hand. Are they going to control how to react if, you know, telling them if you see four closing the road, well, maybe they want to ride for Sam Bennett. So it's no point killing yourself unless you want to go on the breakaway. They keep an eye on if they're going to close the road or not, because, you know, it's great showing the jersey, but we don't want to be kind of stupid. We need to think about maybe tomorrow's stage or maybe planning an attack in the finish. Or also the same when you're trying to get a young guy into a GC position, you can't go fiery and saying, you know, attack here, attack there. It's more about, okay, try and seven a G here. Use this guy to bring you up here. And, you know, in the crosswinds, well, yes, you might need to, to, to take a little bit more wind, but don't go on the inside because you won't have the horsepower to hold it. So you have to kind of play and move around uh, on the right side where the wing is and trying to explain how to maneuver and how to react in certain circumstances so they can get their best shots. I always wanted to ask a former pro turning sport director, and I expect an honest answer here now. Have you ever been so frustrated in your car that you were just about to yell in a microphone, guys, you want me to jump out of the car and show it myself how it has to be done? I did that for 15 years. Now I'm going to jump out of my car and do it to show you. Have you ever had a moment like that? Because this would be one of the reasons why I never turned DS because I yeah. would be so short patient with the boys. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. And I think this is why it would be difficult for me to be a DS at work for level because this is the reaction where that I would have. And, and last year I was approached by, by some teams to go into, into the world tour. And I was like, no, no, because I, I don't want to be told by 20 year old guys who, who know it all. I know it all. And every time you give him advice, he's telling you, I know, I know, I know. And then, but they don't know. They're maybe stronger than I ever was. They know probably not more about the diet and the training, but when it comes to racing, I agree with you, Jens. I, it was like, come on, guys, can you not see it? Can you not see the move happening? Can you not? So, so this is why with the with the guys in in the the kind of development mode, it's more about supporting them and helping them, and, and giving them their their best shot. And so I didn't have that chance. Also, in, in fairness, I've only done three races with them so far. So maybe if I do four or five, I might get to that stage. It's still, it's still early because last year I, I looked after the mountain bike team more than the, the road team because um, Andrew, so the, the owner and one of my, my best friends and that looks after the, that, that's his son, that's his, that's his baby. And while well, he actually waiting, expecting his wife was expecting his, the second baby and he needed a bit of support and he was lacking staff to go into the, the mountain bike. So I kind of improvised myself into, into my mountain bike team manager. But that was fun. That was proper fun. 
and it was only four riders to to look after so in terms of managing and logistics it's quite easy and there unfortunately i don't have the experience and they have their own coaches to talk about you know suspensions and tires and all that so so for me it was it was purely the management side and logistics with with managing the staff and where we're doing and the timing uh and, and but it was fun i enjoyed it i was you know even umbrella boy at the, at the start line helping the guys on and girls because it was Chiara, an italian girl um and carrying rollers around and i remember there was always a, a david the ceo of uh of bmc he, he's walking by the pits and he sees me doing an umbrella job nico what are you doing here doing umbrella places yeah you know, I'm just I'm just trying everything, <laughs> and uh, and then we had a good laugh about it, and um, and, and yeah, it's just um, I, I I really enjoy at the moment kind of looking for like every week I have a different job, and it's pretty pretty exciting. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Andrew, um, you know that's his team was basically kind of started around developing Tom Pidcock, right, and. Did you, did you, now you were racing still, so you probably didn't have uh, any, any contact with, with Tom, but I mean, that's the lineage of the team that we're talking about right now is where Tom Pidcock has come from. And it's so cool that you're giving, giving back to some of those young guys. And, you know, I went through, you know, retiring and then becoming like a race coach DS and you're right. You got to check your ego at the door because if you need to hold an umbrella for somebody, you can't have an ego and hold an umbrella. You got to do anything that it takes to make those riders feel a little bit more confident, a little bit more comfortable. And not everybody can do it. It's 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 um it's a it's a tough job, tough job. But another really cool thing, not only, you know, did you have an amazing career yourself, but you got to share a lot of it with your your cousin Dan, Dan Martin. How how was that? I mean, that's so cool that you you know your cousin was racing with you and, you know, didn't you guys, I think retired in the same year as well, right? Same year. Yes. Yeah. Dan has been, Dan and I have been, we're, we're, it's funny because, um, a lot of people think we, we have arguments, especially in Ireland, or we, this competition and we don't get involved and which is, which is funny because we're, you know, we're living in different parts of the world. We don't hang out that much together, but we're really close when it comes to making those important phone calls. And, and every time Dan needs me or I need him, we're on the phone together. And, and it's kind of funny because we wouldn't call each other for like literally four months. And then next thing we have a phone call and it's like an hour and a half phone call. <laughs> so it's really, it's a really strange, um, relationship that I have with Dan, but, uh, the two of us were, were very supportive of each other and, and, you know, I, I. I was always backing that up in his classics and then when he became his more to the grand tours, uh, and then he, at the beginning of his career, we, he was always kind of very supportive of what I was doing and uh, what I was battling for, for kind of my GC results. And it's kind of funny because our careers kind of went crossways where I, I matured very early and then kind of all that at a certain level where Dan matured a little bit later and then in his career and, and, um, and it was great for the Irish fans because they always had someone to support them. But um, to go back to the, to the decision of stopping together, well, it was actually Dan who made me realize that maybe it was time to call it uh, for me too. So when he, when he told me, you know, when I, I was racing Jura with him and he wins the stage, and I was like, you know, there's no way he's going to retire. Now, that did not even cross my mind. And then I meet him in the Olympics and we're having this talk at dinner and he's go, Nico, 
that's it for me. I'm done. And, you know, I was like, okay, maybe he's just angry with the situation or I don't know, maybe he's got issues or he's just not happy with the team or, and I was like, but are you serious? He says, yeah, I'm done. I've had enough. I'm done. And he gave me all a bunch of reasons why he was done. And my light bulb just went, whoop. said, well, I can't agree with like 90% of the stuff you're telling me. Uh, and maybe it is time for me to stop. And yes, for the last four years of my, of my career, I was the oldest rider by, not by one or two years, but by five or six years. And, you know, the oldest rider in some way was, was 31 at the time, but I was already 36, 37. And, and I was like, well, well, maybe there is a time for a change. Uh, and yes, like I said earlier on, there was things that I didn't enjoy anymore, but it was also, you know, how it is, it's, it's very difficult to, to maintain that revenue when you're out of the cycling world. So I was like, you know, maybe I can kind of bite the bullet and keep my budget for the three year and, and get on with it. And, and then I realized that, well, yes, it's great, but that's very short term and short sighted and life after cycling is going to be longer than the life pre cycling hopefully. And maybe if I get a head start on a lot of these bigger riders that I knew were going to retire this year, well, maybe I can get that job in TV. Uh, and maybe I can get that job in as a BS or as a manager or whatever. So that was kind of all the kind of things I pushed up in my mind. And it's okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna retire because I was in my mind. I thought 2023 was my was my kind of my benchmark. That's it. Okay, I'm gonna stop in 2023, and if I can, maybe I'll go the next year to Paris. Um, and then, but no one expected that I was gonna retire that year. But like I said, it just. Literally in one month, I made that call and I was, uh, I was out on the bike with uh, David Coulthard and he told me that he, he was the same. He was loving it, loving it, loving it. And then from one day to the other, he says, okay, that's it. I'm done. But he says he knew he was done. Uh, and I had a bit, uh, had a long conversation with him and he told me all this process of making the call. Uh, and he was asking me, he says, are you sure you're in the same situation and, and all that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, Dave, I'm sure I can relate to what you're saying. I said, okay, well, you know, but then, then you're, you're okay to, to make that call. So now we talked about the um, end of your career. If now, let's see, the lightning hits the restaurant you sit in, you get caught in a time loop, <laughs> and then 18-year-old Nicholas Roach walks in. What would you tell him? What would you tell yourself, 18 years old, about your career and the next, let's say, 20 years to come? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's a tough question. Um, that's a tough question because there's a lot of things, uh, and you know, like even today, I realized that if I only knew half of, but I think that's it, everyone in every terms of life. If I only knew half of what I know now, when I was a, a cyclist, but not only in cycling, in in life experience, and you know, I think I've I've had quite of a roller coaster life. My brother's cancers, and divorce, um. And, and changing quite some teams, injuries, and up and downs. Uh, but I, I, I guess, um, I, I guess at the beginning of my career, I was very, I was very, very. I lost a lot of energy in being stressed about things that I could not control. I would get frustrated very easily, and that's something that I had to learn to manage. And I was always, you know, especially when you're always on those crazy diets and crazy trainings, you're always kind of hungry and angry with life. And, uh, and I was an angry young man, um, that was, that was always on, on the edge and, and, and looking back, that's something that I would say, it was like, all right, 
maybe you don't need to go so deep into those diets that that affect your 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 sense of you know uh, your attitude basically uh, and if there's things that you can't control well just just deal with it and and not not just waste so much energy in giving out or being frustrated about it well very very well said i mean i think we all look back and see ourselves um and think why did I act like that? Why did I make those decisions? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? But that's that's just part of it, right? Like there's no no magic sprinkle dust out there that's all of a sudden gonna change those things. But yeah, there are those 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 waves, those peaks, those valleys, and you just gotta come out of it. And it sounds like you're very happy now. I mean, gravel is very therapeutic. I mean, again, I'm a cat five gravel participant, not a Belgian waffle. Uh, master, but man, oh man, it is, it is so therapeutic just to get out there and not have to worry about the cars. Um, you know, now I, I've been, there's a race this weekend. We have this great series here um, called the South Southeast Gravel Series. I think it's six different um, events throughout the year. So um, after, after the show, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the link. So maybe you come over to here to the uh, the southeast and and uh, participate with us, but it is it is just really really cool. I mean, I saw that Richie Port just got a gravel bike from Fausto Pinarello, maybe as a retirement gift. So may, maybe instead of doing it by yourself next year, you can share a little van with 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 Richie. What do you think? Should we give him a call? Oh, we definitely should give a call to Richie. Um, Richie is is one of my my best friends. In- in the cycling world or even in life and uh we shared a van on crits so we could do that definitely for on poster crits so we could definitely do that for gravelling when you mentioned you were um, riding bikes with a dave coltart would you think cycling riding bikes is a is a big um like stress relief for formula one or was david coltart uh, the only one ever who rode bicycles as a formula one pilot no, I think for actually a lot of drivers and and motorbike uh, pilots, they they love it. I what well, one is good for for the physical, um, basically endurance. But I think they the same way we enjoyed it at the beginning. This thing of freedom, freedom, and I don't know if, if you guys ever had that. But when I'm on the bike, I I've had so many ideas, uh, and I, and I've I've used the bike for everything. I've used the bike to to get rid of stress, uh, I've used a bike uh, when I'm overstressed and, and I need to escape or all the opposite for fun. And I, uh, but also some days I'm on the bike and I'm just thinking I'm so creative that I have to stop every, every couple of kilometers to, to top an email or something. And you, and you just don't know. I think just the way the hormones and everything works in your body. Um, but I, I've, there's this moments when I'm when I'm like training and and I start thinking and thinking and thinking and I think for a lot of these guys it's a little bit the same they see a way to get fit to escape um, and the social aspect as well uh, and especially when the weather is good uh, why not uh, you know sometimes in run a run it's a bit more traumatizing unless you're used to running where on the bike it's, it's hard to to hurt yourself apart if you fall off. Well, Nico, I tell you, 
that hamburger is probably ice cold by now. So I just wanted to thank you for taking time out of your your little stop on the way to Oklahoma, your your ten hour drive or so, and and catching up with us. It was it was a blast. And I, like I said, if you are at all interested in coming out here to the the southeast area. We got some good races for you. You know, George and Christian are around. We can take you out on a, a little casual gravel ride as well. But one, one last question. Do you know how to use those little tire plugs yet? I mean, to fix flats? So, so here's a funny one. When I punctured the first time, I, I just bought them and had it in the back pocket. You know, it was Nathan Haas that said, Nico, you need to buy these tire plugs. And I had it in the back pocket. And there's a group of about six of us, about 40K to go in this World Cup in, in Italy and and again I attacked them and next thing I look back to see what happens from I hit a rock puncture as I'm attacking and anyway the group passes me and I'm, and I'm trying to roll and I'm trying to stay with the group and and I'm here asking Nathan says Nathan how do I use this thing <laughs> I saw I had bought it but I had, re- I had realized that I'd never used it <laughs> I was like I was, oh, you take it out you put the, the plug in and then you take it and you put it out but remember this remember that I was like okay so the first time, obviously, it took me about 20 minutes on the side of the road to get it in. Um, unfortunately, I had a lot of punctures last year, so I've, I haven't mastered it yet, but um, I'm getting there. Well, dang. Well, good. You got one up on me. And like I said, Cat 5, you must be a Cat 4 or Cat 3 by now. So, um, Nico, all the best. Be safe. Enjoy the United States and can't wait to catch up with you later when you're done with this amazing adventure that you're on. Thanks. Thanks for talking to you guys. It was cool. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks for Nico for being our guest. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a five-star review and don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Valley News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mossa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens. And as Nico travels around America, don't forget to share your favorite places for him to visit. Mm-hmm.